All right, good morning. You guys can have a seat. It's good to see all of you today. Um, I'm happy to be up here having the opportunity to uh, preach God's word to you. It's always a privilege uh, to get to do that. I always love gathering together to worship the Lord with you guys. Um, I want to ask, do any of you in here wish that you were better at sharing your faith with others? I know that I, I do. <laughs> like, that's, it's something that I want to continue to grow in. I was a person that actually grew up in the church, so I was around church people a lot. And, uh, you know, you can't read the Bible very much without seeing the significance of evangelism and how it's something that uh, early Christians would, would do a lot. But then I looked at my experience growing up, and it was like I saw very little of that. I, I didn't have any good models uh, to, to look to and say, man, okay, how is it? that I actually share my faith uh, with other people. It was one, one of those things I knew was important, but I didn't feel like I really knew how to do it. And it wasn't until I got to college uh, that I met some people who actually shared their faith on a regular basis, uh, and that allowed me to, to learn from them. And I started to share my faith a lot more, and I started to, to get a lot better at communicating uh, what I believe and, and answering questions that other people have. I'm thankful for people like Chad Frank and Tori Mayo and Adele Trump Power that uh, invested in me and, and took me out and, and helped me to just be someone that learned how to really have conversations about Jesus with others that uh, might not have the same worldview as I do. And so I've grown a lot in this, but I believe it's something that we can all grow in uh, throughout our lives and something that we need to grow in as followers of Jesus because uh, he's called us not just to be disciples, but to be disciple makers. And so one of the ways that we can continue to grow in this is by learning from people who are really good at it and really experienced at sharing their faith. Um, and this morning, that's exactly what we're going to do. And I'm not talking about you learning from me. Uh, I, I do have some things I'll share, but, but mainly I'm talking about learning from the Apostle Paul, um, who was one of the greatest missionaries to ever live. We're going to see the way that he shared his faith in, in Jesus in three different cities this morning. And I'm going to point out there's a lot I could point out. I'm, I've limited myself to seven things I'm going to point out about what he did and uh, consequently what we can do as well and, and how to share our faith about Jesus with others. And so my prayer is that this morning is going to be like informative, that it's going to be encouraging, uh, that it'll be instructive, challenging, uh, but it'll be equipping too, that you'll be able to walk away from here really getting a good picture of how one of our ancestors in the faith uh, went about consistently sharing Jesus uh, with others who did not know. Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll uh, dive into the text. God, we thank you uh, that you are here with us this morning. God, I thank you that those songs that uh, we sing about you are true. I just uh, think of that song we sang, Behold Our God's, uh, just showing your, your great, awesome power. Like, who, who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? God, you, you are a good and awesome God. We have so much to learn from you. And Lord, we just want to honor you this morning. I pray that you would help us to love you well as we uh, apply ourselves. Help us, God, to focus on what your word is saying, uh, to understand it, and to go out and apply it in our lives. We thank you for the many faithful Christians that have gone before us, uh, who have been faithful to go and make disciples and pass their faith along. Uh, sharing it with others. And God, we pray that you would help us to continue uh, in their legacy. Uh, we love you, Lord, and uh, we pray this in your son's awesome name. 
Amen. So, uh, as a church this summer, we've been studying the book of Acts. And uh, this is really a book that's just telling us the story of how God's church grew and, and took off in the first few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we've seen a lot up to this point, but one of the major things uh, was the conversion of this guy named Saul. Saul uh, was an, originally a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church. He was extremely zealous, religious dude, uh, knew the Old Testament scriptures super well, and he hated this new Christian sect. People didn't really know what it was, but this new thing that was developing, he wanted to just stamp it out as quickly as possible. And so he was even willing to resort to violence to do this. He was giving his approval of the murder of Christians. He was trying to imprison them. However, uh, Jesus appeared to him one day on a journey uh, that he was on, where he was actually going to try and find more Christians to persecute in a different city. Jesus miraculously appears to him and his life totally transforms. And he goes from being uh, one who was trying to stamp out the message of Christianity to being one who was then working as hard as anybody to spread it. And uh, with this, he's a guy that started to go on uh, several missionary journeys, taking the gospel out uh, just from Jerusalem and the surrounding area in Judea. Uh, it started to, to spread a little bit more outside of that. He had got up to this place called Antioch, where there was an awesome, thriving church there. And from Antioch, uh, he and his friend Barnabas set out and started taking the gospel out to even other new cities. And then they came back and they were encouraged about the way that God uh, was moving amongst all of these Gentiles. And when I say Gentile, I just mean a non-Jewish person. People that didn't even share the same ethnic and cultural background that Paul did, right? They didn't even know the Old Testament scriptures, yet even amongst them, God was still moving in miraculous ways. And, and they were putting their faith in Jesus for salvation just as many of the Jews had as well. And so they come back and report this, it's amazing, and, and they're like, hey, we got to go and, and, and do this again. And so he actually gets a new missionary partner named Silas, and they go out on this second missionary journey. And uh, this is the, the place where we are going to be in Acts this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, and it's on this second journey where the gospel is starting to expand even further out into other cities uh, where people have never really heard before. So we'll be in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. I'm going to read the first uh, 15 verses here. It says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women, but the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. 
Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. All right, so as I said, there's a a ton we could get into in this passage, and there's more we're going to read through this morning. So I have to be selective in what I'm going to share here. Uh, But I I, am pulling out seven of points of what I think are uh, great tips that we can apply in our lives and how to be effective evangelists. And the first thing that I see in this passage is that Paul was strategic about the places that he went to go and take the gospel to new frontiers. You see that uh, he was strategic in a couple ways. First was with the city that he chose. He, he chose to spend a, a lot of time in Thessalonica. Now it says that he passed through these, these other cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia, but it, it just says he passed through them. He knew he had a limited amount of time. Where was he going to devote most of his time? It was in Thessalonica. Well, why? Thessalonica was a much bigger city. It was a much more influential city. It was the capital of Macedonia, which was the region that he was in. It had a pretty large population for the time. It was about 200,000 people, and it was also a major port city. And so he knew that if he wanted to reach a lot of people with the gospel, this was a great city in this area to, to serve as a home base for doing that. And not only did he go to this strategic city, but he was strategic about where he went within the city. You'll notice that it says that he went to the synagogue of the Jews, and that it says actually as was his custom. This was uh, Paul's general method of operations. He'd enter into uh, a new city, and the first thing he'd do is he would go to the synagogue. Now, what is a synagogue? It's simply a, a Jewish place of worship. It is a place where uh, Jews would gather. They would read the Old Testament scriptures, study the Old Testament scriptures together. <clears throat> um, I'm using that term so you understand what I'm talking about. They didn't call it the Old Testament at that time, but the scriptures that you know is the Old Testament, this is what they, they would study uh, and, and uh, speak about together. Now, Paul, remember his background. He was a Jew. He knew these scriptures really well. Matter of fact, he used to be a religious leader amongst them. And so it was a great spot for him to go. Why? Because he was going to be able to engage really well in the kind of conversations that they were having. And they were able to work off of a common ground uh, of authority that they had. Everyone in the building that was coming to the synagogue was interested in what those scriptures had to say. And they saw them as authoritative, word of God. And so Paul was like, hey, if I can start here with this place where people already believe something that's the same as me and I help them to see how it's pointing to Jesus, then that's a great starting point. Now, of course, Paul would go and he would reach other people outside the synagogue, but when it came to his strategy, that pretty much all the cities he went to, this was the first place that he would go. It was the place where he was most likely to be able to win converts because they were working off of this uh, common ground as a starting point. When I look at what we do here at H2O, I just want to tell you, like, this church was planted on a college campus for a reason, right? I think about the the strategy that Paul had in going and trying to reach the masses. He went to Thessalonica. He went to the synagogue. Well, H2O was planted on a college campus because we believe that this is one of the most strategic places in the world to be able to reach people with the gospel. You think about this. 
people come to college to learn, right? Like that's the whole idea of why you even go to the university in the first place is that you realize I need to be educated. I need to learn. I'm, I'm trying to set myself up for the future. And so yes, you're trying to, to figure out how to be an engineer or how to be a teacher or a businessman or whatever. But also like this is a great time of life to be thinking about what is it that's really important. When you're thinking about what kind of this thing you want to pursue as a career, or you're thinking about marriage and getting into a serious dating relationship, you need to know, what is my life really about? What are the things that I actually value? And oftentimes in college, people are really out from under their parents' roof to where they can make these kind of decisions on their own for the first time. It's a very strategic time in a person's life to be able to speak to them about what matters most, which is their relationship with the Lord. You know, one of the other things that's amazing about the college campus is that people flock here. Think about our neighborhood. We have thousands of new people that move into our neighborhood every single year. Like, what, what other neighborhood is there that's like that? You guys realize in, in a, about a month, there's going to be thousands and thousands of new people that are coming into our university. And, and I hope that you guys are praying for them right now. Because as, as they move in, they're going to have the opportunity, and we're going to pray that we have the opportunity to be able to tell them about Jesus. And so just as Thessalonica was this port city where people were constantly coming and going, the college campus in many ways is, is a, a similar type of place. We're constantly getting new people that are coming in and having the opportunity to be able to hear about Jesus. And it's not just local people, right, from around Ohio or Kentucky or Indiana. We have people from around the world that are coming right here into our backyard. You think about Jesus telling us to go and make disciples of all nations, the nations are here. There's over, last I looked, there were over 100 different countries that were represented on UC's campus. Man, what an amazing and strategic place we have here at the University of Cincinnati. And finally, one of the other things that's strategic about the university is not just that so many people come, but also that so many people go. Right? Like, there's a lot of people that come here, they're here for a period of time, and then they go off into new places. And if we've been able to, to tell them about Jesus here, they can take that message off with them to wherever they may go next if they don't end up staying in Cincinnati. So I just want to say, if you're here at H2O and you're invested in reaching the University of Cincinnati as a college student or as a community member, like you are being strategic in where you're investing your life uh, with, with trying to reach others with the gospel. The second thing that I see here is that uh, Paul was both faithful and wise. So he knew that his mission was to go and preach about Jesus to people that hadn't heard. And he spent several weeks doing this faithfully in Thessalonica. And there's a lot of stuff that was awesome. Like people became Christians. There were good things that happened. But things also got bad when a mob formed and uh, his friend's house got attacked. Starts to get driven out of the city. So what's he do? He moves on to Berea. Now, it could look like Paul was abandoning his mission by letting the mob drive him out of town, right? Like, Maybe we feel like, oh, he should have just been really stubborn and, and, and stayed there and continued. And, and there are times where the Lord may call us to do things like that. But ultimately, his mission wasn't just to preach in Thessalonica. It was just to go and make disciples. And so as the door started to close in Thessalonica, what did he do? Wisdom dictated that he needed to move locations. So he went off to Berea. And then a similar thing happened in Berea. And what did he do? He moved off into Athens. He never lacked faithfulness in continuing to preach the gospel wherever he went, but he was also wise in knowing when there were times where he needed to get out of a certain place. 
And I, when I think of our lives, it's like, man, there may be times where God calls us to stay and continue investing in a place with that, where there's just really hard soil, where things are difficult, maybe where we're facing a lot of opposition. Uh, but there, are other, there may be other times where it's like, okay, it's actually time to move on and start investing some of my time and my resources in other places or in other relationships. This is the kind of thing that I think that you have to have a really close relationship with the Lord to, to ask him about and know. Uh, we see both things. Sometimes we see Paul stay in difficult places. We even see him later in Acts go to Jerusalem when he knows that he's going to get persecuted there. Uh, but here, in these cases, we see it was wise to just continue moving on to a new place where he was going to have new opportunities. You'll never be called away from your mission to love God and love others, but your location or the people that you invest in may change over time as circumstances demand. All right, so at this point, Paul's been driven out of two cities, and he's on his way to a third one in Athens. We're going to pick back up here. We get a little bit more detail about this one, so we'll spend more time on it. Uh, go to verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead." Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
Okay, I love this sermon. We could probably do a whole sermon series just on what Paul preached there in Athens, but I'm going to restrain myself and, and stick to what I was talking about where we're just going to be drawing out what is it uh, that Paul is doing here to help us learn how to share our faith with others. And in his time in Athens here, one of the things I see is that Paul w- was such a great evangelist because he genuinely cared. Uh, he, he genuinely cared. He cared about uh, the, the fact that God wasn't getting the glory he deserved, and he cared about the fact that people were lost in darkness. If you look at that in Acts 17, 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. This is a strong word that's, that's speaking about what was happening in Paul's heart. He was greatly disturbed by what he saw going on in this city. Uh, this, this term's not used very often in the New Testament, but it's used a lot in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's oftentimes used for like when God is stirred towards anger about idolatry. Uh, so, so Paul was uh, feeling this, this same sort of unsettledness when he sees how lost this city of Athens is. He saw all the idolatry around him, and he hated it. He hated that the, the God of the, of the universe, the one who is deserving of all glory, who, who's worthy of all our praise, wasn't getting it, and it was being wasted, given to stupid blocks of gold and silver and, and wood. He hated that the people were walking in darkness and foolishness, serving gods that could do nothing for them. And so this provoked him to go and do something about it. You know, Paul could have just laid low while he was at Athens, right? Like, he's been through it a little bit here. Uh, we just saw him get driven out of two different cities, and if you read before that, he had actually recently been uh, beaten and imprisoned as well. So he's having a rough time in a lot of ways, and at this point, he's isolated. Uh, you, you look at how missions would happen in, in the New Testament the vast majority of the time, it's a team-based strategy, right? Like, Paul doesn't usually just go off Lone Ranger style. He has his friends with him. Uh, We see that here in Athens, he's by himself. He got separated from Silas uh, because of all the uproar and everything, and him just having to escape Athens really quickly. So here he is by himself. I don't think any of us would have blamed him probably for just, like, laying low for a little bit, chilling, and waiting for his friends to get there and catch up with him. But he couldn't help himself because he knew how much was at stake. He knew how much people needed God and how much these idols were not going to help them. So rather than lay low, he did what he always did, which was he went and he spoke about Jesus in the synagogue. And not only did he preach about Jesus in the synagogue, but it says that he was also doing this in the marketplace. So uh, wherever he was and whoever he was around, he was speaking to them about Jesus. And this was driven out of his care for the glory of God and for the good of people. And, and when we have that kind of heart, that's going to be one of the best things that actually drives us to be evangelists. Even when, when our plans have a wrench thrown in them. Paul did not plan on going to Athens this way. But because of his care, he was willing to be flexible and, and preach about Jesus wherever he had the opportunity. And when I look around our city, man, I, I see one that's full of idols as well. We don't have many idols anymore that are, are you know, blocks of, of gold or silver or stone. But we still have a lot of people that, uh, a lot of things that people are trusting in. A lot of things that, that people are serving, that they're giving their devotion, their time, and their energy to. They're putting their hope in, and they're things that aren't able to deliver. I see people worshiping the idol of success, idol of money, idol of sex, pleasure, achievement. 
idol family, wandering around pursuing idols, giving all sorts of their best time and energy to something that cannot save them or satisfy them. And so as you see this idolatry that, that Paul was amongst in Athens and that we live amongst even here in Cincinnati today, we have to ask, like, what does this do to our spirit? Is, is your spirit provoked by the idolatry that we see around us? Because that's going to be one of the biggest things that helps you to be an effective evangelist. Let the reality of our broken and needy world be something that drives you to share the only hope that there is for the world. And so may we, like Paul, proclaim the one God that wants people to find him and have a relationship with him. And as we do this, who knows what kind of doors it will open, right? Paul was in Athens almost, it seems, like by accident. It wasn't, it wasn't something he planned out on his itinerary. But as he's taking every advantage of, of, of every opportunity he has in the synagogue, in the marketplace, what happens? He's actually given a platform. Right? Like, he's given a platform to go and speak at the Areopagus, which is like, a, a, you might, might have heard it called Mars Hill, if you ever see that term, it's that same idea. It's this, this hill where um, people would come and, and they would discuss ideas. And, and so the, the biggest uh, influencers and, and leaders in the city are here at Mars Hill, at the Areopagus, uh, listening to him share about Jesus. And so as he does this, He's given this opportunity. How does he start, right? Like, let's say that you care, you're provoked, you, you want to share uh, Jesus with others. How do you do it? Well, the first thing that I see Paul do is he starts with common ground, right? And he, and he does this by being observant. Look at what he says in 1722. Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. If you want to speak deeply into someone's life, it really helps you to know who they actually are. You probably heard the phrase that, you know, people don't know how much you care until, uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that's generally true, especially when it comes to speaking to them about deep matters of the heart, which is what Christianity gets to. If you just want to come out and, and, and speak and you don't even take any time to observe the lives of others, to listen to what's going on, uh, w whether that's on a large scale like Paul did and just kind of observing their culture, or whether it's in the context of relationship, listening to what's actually going on in a person's life, you're going to have a hard time speaking meaningfully into their lives. Paul took a little time to actually observe them in Athens, get to know them. He even quoted uh, some of their own poets in his sermon, right? He's doing everything he can to help them realize, hey, I, I know you, I care about you, I'm taking time to understand you, I get what's going on in your heart, and I know, what, I, I know the problems you have, and I know what the solution is. And when we're trying to share the gospel with others, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to speak into our friends' hearts. But if they don't think that we even understand their heart, how, how likely is it that they're going to listen to us? You know, too often I think that Christians can be judgmental towards others who are living in sin without ever stopping to even think about what's going on in their lives that's causing them to behave the way that they are. You know, I'm, I'm not in any way saying that we shouldn't care about sin. We absolutely should. But we should think about what is it that's driving people to, to live the way they're living or to do the things that they're doing. The people of Athens are here. They're participating in sinful idol worship. But why? Uh, well, there's, there's a couple of things that Paul shows in his sermon. First off is that they didn't know any better. He says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. 
there, there was a lot of ignorance that was going on in Athens. This is a place where, where Paul had compassion for these people because they hadn't even heard about Jesus yet. And I, I think that sometimes because we live in the United States that we assume that everyone here knows the gospel, knows what the Bible has to say, and that they've rejected it if they're not a Christian. But I, I really don't think that's true. There are more and more people who are growing up now with little to no exposure to true Christianity. And uh, they may know nothing more than just kind of what, the, what a politically motivated news headline or something tells them. I've spoken to plenty of people who were even around Christians in some capacity when they were growing up, but they had never actually heard the gospel before. Like one of my friends I, I led to the Lord, he was from India, but he uh, grew up going to a Catholic school, right? Like they would read the Bible there and stuff. He never heard the gospel until I shared it with him. As a grad student here at the University of Cincinnati, and, and he's following Jesus now. It's awesome. He, he became a Christian, but it was just like, there, there's a lot of people that, that are living the way they're living because they're living in ignorance. And, and, you know, the other thing is that, man, not only are these people living in ignorance, they actually knew that they were searching for something important, but they just didn't know where to look. They were looking in the wrong places. Right? He said in 1723, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. They knew that there was something that they were missing. They just didn't know how to find it. And I think that this is true of a lot of people around us. Now, not everyone has this sense of awareness, sure. But I think there's a lot of people, they, they, they know that they need something deeper, but they don't know how or where to find it. And so what do they do? They, they look for it in drugs. They look for it in sex. They look for it in alcohol. They look for it in work. Do you think that there could be something deeper that's driving hookup culture or pornography addiction? Is it something as simple as just a physical desire that people can't control so it drives them to destructive behaviors? Or is there something deeper where people are yearning for connection or approval, but they don't know where to find it? So a, a one-night stand or, or a time looking at someone on the internet or something is going to have to suffice. Man, on our deepest level, all of us are searching for God in some way. He has made us to do that. I look at verses 26 and 27. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God has created us to be people that have a relationship with him. That's what he wants. And at the deepest level, that's what our hearts desire and need. But oftentimes, we don't know how to find it. He's not far from each one of us. But too often, we're grasping around in the dark. And so I ask, man, like, what do you see in the lives of your friends that shows them grasping for God? What do you see? And, and, and as you're able to observe that, just as Paul was able to observe the idol worship of the Athenians, and, and, and he was able to use that to speak into their lives about Jesus, I would ask you to do the same things about the people that you know. What do you see them grasping at that's showing the way that they need the Lord? I remember one time I was uh, doing evangelism on campus, uh, and I talked to a girl, and she really wanted to be married. I can't remember if she was, like, in a long-term relationship and was hoping the guy would propose soon or if she was single. I honestly don't remember. I just remember that that topic came up where she was, like, really interested in marriage. 
And so as she wanted this, what I did is I started to speak to her about the way that Jesus sees the church as his bride. And, and I, I used that as a platform to be able to preach the gospel to her. And that, that girl ended up praying to receive Christ that day and start following Jesus. Um, I don't know what came over. I, I think she was a commuter student. I, I haven't kept up with her, so I don't know what's going on in her life right now. But the reality was that there was something where there, there was a need that was in her heart. That ultimately Jesus was the one that's best able to fulfill. And that's true for every person that we speak to. There's common grounds in our hearts between us and the people that we want to reach who don't follow Jesus yet. And we need to find what that is and help them to see the way that Jesus fulfills. And the good news, guys, is that we have the answer. Like, we can speak with conviction. And you see that Paul did that here. Like, in a sense, Paul was gentle in finding common ground, but also he spoke with great conviction. Like, he was convinced of what was true, and he was un unapologetic about it. I mean, I look at that statement in 23. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. That's a strong and confident statement. Right? It might even seem arrogant. But it's not arrogant. It's just true. And, and it's not arrogant because he's not trying to puff himself up. He's not acting like he's smarter than they are. But rather, he's trying to help them by sharing something important that he's convinced of. And you know, Paul had good reason to be convinced, right? His, his faith wasn't just a blind faith. It rested upon a strong mix of both personal experience and objective evidence, okay? We, we uh, documented his personal conversion story a few weeks back when I preached on that out of Acts 9. But also, like, there was a lot that pointed him to faith in Jesus. It didn't just have to be that experience, Notice how the text says in, in several points here in this chapter that he reasoned with people, okay? Uh, his faith stood on solid ground. And just like Paul, if we want to be effective evangelists, we should learn how to reason with other people. Christianity has more evidence supporting it than any other worldview that I have ever been exposed to. I am dead serious about that. I'm talking about logical, uh, philosophical, historical, whatever, anything. There are so many things that, that come together to help support the Christian worldview um, that, that I think everything else pales in comparison. And I've had a lot of conversations with people from a lot of different worldviews. And, and the rea reality is there are so many things that we can reason from that, that give uh, credibility to our faith. We see one of the things that Paul did is he reasoned from the scriptures. So uh, the, the Bible is a truly incredible document. It, it's filled with all sorts of stuff. One of the amazing things being fulfilled prophecy. So just as one example, reason from the scriptures. Go read Isaiah chapter 53. And if you, if you isolate it, you would think that was taken out of the New Testament. Right? But Isaiah 53 is in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, it was written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. It was a known passage. Like, we know that this passage existed well before the time that Jesus walked the earth and, and was crucified. But when you read it, it is straight up explaining penal substitutionary atonement, which is what we believe happened at the cross, that Jesus died on the cross bearing the sins of his people. I mean, it, it's, it's like uncanny. I remember I was doing evangelism up at uh, uh, Buffalo, when we took our spring break trip up there. And uh, I uh, was speaking to a guy who was Jewish, and I asked him, hey, have you, have you ever read Isaiah 53? He said, no. So, okay, so we opened it together. We read it together. And I was like, um, have you ever read that? No. So, okay, well, 
who do you think that's talking about? He said, well, it sounds to me like Jesus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's talking about Jesus, right? But it's, but it's written hundreds of years before. And, and there's, there's so many other things that we could do, but, but one of the things we can reason from the scriptures, we, we have this uh, amazing reality, and, and Paul would do that consistently. He'd go to the Old Testament scriptures and say, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. Look at how all of this is pointing forward to Jesus. But you know, not only that, that, that's great if you're going to the synagogue like Paul did, right? Or if you run into a Jewish man the way that I did at Buffalo. Um, but if you're talking to someone who doesn't really care about what the Old Testament scriptures have to say, uh, there's still a lot of other things that you can reason from. Like we can reason from science. Science and faith are not enemies at all. That is a lie from the devil. If you, if you believe that science is, is, is somehow contrary to faith in the Lord. Um, Science is simply a tool that helps us better understand the world that God created. Right? Like as, as we use this tool, we actually start to see how complex and incredible and amazing our universe is that would only lend more and more towards the idea that it had to have some sort of intelligent design. You know, we use science to observe and understand the world. And one thing that we've consistently seen is that we live in a cause and effect universe. That's actually what makes science possible, right? That we know one thing leads to another. If, if everything just randomly happened in the universe and we couldn't trace how uh, one thing leads to another, we actually wouldn't be, able to, uh, we wouldn't be able to do scientific experiments. We couldn't isolate variables. We couldn't have hypotheses. It would just be everything would be totally random. But because we live in that kind of a universe, we know that anytime I see something, there had to be something else that led to that. Like this music stand didn't just appear out of nowhere. Someone had to build it. I had to move it over here, right? We, we understand that. Well, when we look at that, 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 that does kind of lead to a problem to some degree, right? Because we have this giant effect, which is our universe. Well, what was the cause? If everything in our universe needs a cause, then how do we have an effect? There had to be something else that was earlier. And that's where I say that, that, that points us to the, the need for something that is not governed by all of the same rules and restrictions that the rest of our universe is. You might call it something supernatural, above nature. And that is who God is. God is the one that creates the rules. He's not bound by them. And so while everything material needs something else that caused it, our God doesn't because he is eternal. Science points us to, to having to make a conclusion that that is what we need. Finally, you know, we can reason from history. How do you explain the, the birth of Christianity if not for the resurrection of Jesus? When you look at the historical development of Christianity, it's incredible. We, our faith is not based on something where it was just like, hey, some guy says, an angel told me this, and people either believe it or don't. Our faith is based upon a historically verifiable event. Like, Jesus was a real person that even non-Christian uh, historians believe that Jesus was a real person and that he was crucified. And the big thing that was the, this giant impetus for the church being born and people sharing their faith was the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. There was a public crucifixion, and he rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why does Christianity get started in the first place? Because that, that, that's, that's what everyone is, is saying happened. Like, they would, why would they go out and die for something that they know is a lie? If there's one guy that's just saying, hey, an angel told me something and he wants to deceive a bunch of people, that's, that, he, might have, he might have success in doing that. But the, the resurrection is something that was witnessed by a lot of people. 
Like not just all the disciples, but uh, we see in 1 Corinthians, it talks about Jesus appeared to over 400 at one time. It, with all of these Christian martyrs throughout history, especially the early ones who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, we would have to say that they were martyred for their faith knowing that it was a lie. People are willing to die for something that they believe is true but is a lie. But all of the, the first people that preached Christianity all would have had to die for something that they knew was a lie if the resurrection didn't actually happen. There, there's, there's so many things that we can do to reason, and, and I'm just scratching the surface with this. Um, but there's a whole field called apologetics that focuses on providing a reasonable and logical defense of our faith. There's some great resources out there uh, for you on this. Um, I can point you to some of them if you want to talk to me after the service. But a great starting point, there's a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, uh, written by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. We actually brought Frank to campus a couple years ago. He comes around and he just speaks uh, uh, on logical defense of the faith all around the country and I think even internationally. Uh, we're actually going to be bringing him again in November here, so you can get excited for that. Um, but anyway, like we have a, a very strong worldview that's based on a lot of evidence that we can reason from. And finally, some, something else that I would say we see Paul doing as an evangelist and that we need to do if we want to be effective evangelists is trust God. There's so many things that we can find great answers to, but at the end of the day, there's still going to be a lot of questions that we're left with. There's some things that we don't know the answer to. It may not even be possible for us to know the answer to right now on this side of eternity. But that's okay, because I, I don't have confidence in sharing my faith primarily because I know the answer to every question. I don't. What gives me greater confidence is knowing that I serve the almighty God of the universe. Look at the way that Paul describes this God that we serve in his preaching. He's the one that made the world and everything in it. He doesn't need anything as if he's served by human hands. He gives us life. He's determined when and where people will live. He knows everything. And, and so when we go out to share the gospel with others, when we have the courage to open our mouths to uh, speak about the gospel with our friends and our family, we know that we're doing that under the protection of God Almighty. <clears throat> and, and you know what? The people that you live and work around, God has ordained that that would happen. Right? I, I love that where he talks about like the, the Lord is the one that determined the times and the boundaries of their habitation. That means that God has decided when you would live and where you would live. The people that you are around, that's not an accident. God has determined that you're the person he wants living around the people that you are living around. That's pretty cool. Right? Like, like he, he has equipped you to be someone that gets to speak truth into the circle of influence that you have. And it comforts me to know that even though I don't know everything or can't do everything, I serve the almighty God of the universe. And as Paul would write in, in uh, one of his uh, letters to the Roman, in his letter to the Romans, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? So oftentimes we let fear be something that, that stops us from sharing. We, we don't know if we're going to have uh, every answer. We don't know if we're going to get rejected, you know, whatever. The reality is, guys, we're, we are on the side of God. I would take God over the whole world. And you know, the, the power of God is both a comforting thing and a terrifying thing. It's comforting if you're in a right relationship with him, but it's terrifying if you're not. He is the king, and he's going to set all things right at one point. 
Look at what Paul said in verses 30 and 31. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There is a day that God has fixed when he is going to judge the world in righteousness. He is going to have a righteous standard by which he judges. Well, what does that mean? Are you righteous? Am I righteous? I can tell you by my own works, absolutely not. The Bible tells me that the wages of sin is death. It also says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If the Lord is judging the world in righteousness and I am standing on my own righteousness, it's not going to go well for me. And it won't go well for you either if that's the strategy that you decide. If righteousness is the standard, then you won't meet it on your own. But this is the good news about Jesus. Right? This is, this is the good news that Paul is going and sharing in all these different places. This is that news that Isaiah 53 even foretold, that he was pierced for, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. By his wounds we are healed. And see, what, what, what happened is that, that Jesus came. He's God in the flesh. He lives a perfect life. He's the only one that never sinned. Yet he still went to the cross and died the death of a criminal. Why? Because he chose to. He chose to go and hang on the cross that he could die in your place and in mine because the wages of sin is death. And he said, you know what? I'm going to pay that for you. But he didn't just stay in the grave. He rose from the dead showing that he had overcome the curse of sin. That he had overcome death. And that anyone who would put their faith in him will be delivered from its curse as well. And that although this body may pass away, we will be people that live for eternity, forgiven, uh, in constant fellowship forever with the Lord because we have been made righteous. Not because we are righteous, but because Jesus is righteous and he's given that righteousness to us. And so the response it calls for is that all people everywhere should repent. That, that we would turn from our own sin, that we would turn from going our own ways, that we would turn from being king of our own lives and we say, Jesus, I trust you to be my king. I trust you to be my savior. This is what God wants for all people everywhere to repent. And you know, if this is what God wants, then we need to be people that are willing to do what's necessary to share this message with others. And, and I would just close with my last point of saying that we need to be willing to suffer, be rejected, or look like a fool if you want to be an effective evangelist. You know, even though Paul had the best message in the world, and he had great reason to believe it. He had mixed results in, in all three cities that he preached in. In each place, there were some that accepted what he had to say. And there were others who didn't. And because there were some that rejected him, this brought suffering. He was driven out of Thessalonica. They attacked the house of the man that was hosting him. He was driven out of Berea. Some of the people in Athens mocked him when he started talking about the resurrection. If you open your mouth about Jesus, you need to know that there are some people that are going to reject you because of it. It's going to happen. It happened to Paul. Remember that the, the Savior that we serve was rejected by many. 
You know, this, this fear of, of rejection or looking like a fool, this was a, a great fear of mine when I was younger. And I knew that I needed to share my faith, but I didn't really know how. I was so scared of how people might react. I remember being really encouraged and inspired by an old song uh, from a band uh, called DC Talk. They made this song called Jesus Freak. Um, <laughs> some of you are familiar with it. Um, but, but it said, I don't really care if they label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no disguising the truth. And it was just this idea of like, yeah, whatever. L- label me how you want. You want to call me a Jesus freak? That's fine. You want to reject me? That's fine. At the end of the day, is there any label I would rather wear than Jesus freak? Let me be known by my love for Jesus. And, and so it was kind of a turning point where I realized I need to stop caring so much about what other people are going to think of me. That doesn't mean I'm just going to become a total weirdo. And like, remember, the find common ground thing. <laughs> you want to try to be relatable. But at the end of the day, I, 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 am, I am willing to say, whatever. Okay, you want to reject me because I love Jesus? That's fine. That's fine. You know, the people that get to see the coolest stuff are the ones that sometimes look the least cool. Because they're the ones that are willing to stand up and speak the truth even when it might be unpopular. There were plenty of times that Paul looked very uncool. But man, oh man, he got to see some amazing things that the Lord did through him. You know, sometimes sharing the gospel brings rejection and pain. But sometimes lives are changed and you get to see God move in amazing ways. And I know this. I would rather be rejected by man and rewarded by God than rewarded by man and rejected by God. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by the world, and he consistently gave us warning, instruction, and encouragement about this reality. Here's a few examples from the mouth of Jesus. He said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. In John 15, he said this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Don't forget the way that the world treated Jesus. Finally, I'll share with you Matthew 5, 10 to 12. It says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Will we love the world enough to share Jesus with them, even if they might not love us back? It's it's such a part of who Jesus is, right? Like loving people even when when they don't love them back. Uh, Our our living in sin and our stubborn hearts and everything weren't enough to stop Jesus from coming and choosing to save us. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, he prayed for the people that were doing it. And you know, I I am so thankful that that Jesus showed that, loved us that way, 
that there were people like Paul that loved the world enough to say, I'm willing to suffer, be rejected, even die, because I know how much people need this, and I know how much God deserves his glory. I'm thankful that rejection and persecution didn't stop Jesus or many other faithful witnesses after him from loving us. And so, may we be people that go forth and share the gospel with great boldness and conviction, right? That we'd be strategic, that we would be faithful and wise, that we would care about what's at stake, that we'd find common ground with those that we're trying to reach as we observe and look into their hearts, that we'd speak with conviction because we know the truth, that we would trust God, He's watching over us. He knows all things. And that we would be willing to suffer. If you do these things, I have no doubt that you will grow in your ability as an evangelist. And that God will produce good fruit both in and through you. Um, Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, so much for who you are. I I just thank you for the treasure that your word is. God, I, I thank you for the faithfulness of generation after generation after generation that uh, has been willing to, to keep doing whatever it takes to get the gospel uh, to those that need it. God, I thank you for the people that loved me enough to share the gospel with me. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a church full of people, every one of us, mobilized, not, not just sitting on the sidelines, not just waiting for somebody else to go and, and, and tell, but God, that we would all be faithful evangelists, that we would know that you have put us in the circle that you have for a reason. You have determined our, our time of life. You have determined our place that we will live. You know this. And God, I just pray that you would help us to be faithful. Give us the the courage and the love that we need, um, the conviction that we need to go and and, and to just share the truth. God, I I pray for our campus and I pray for the many thousands of uh, people that are going to be coming onto the campus here soon. I pray right now, Lord, that uh, you would just be moving and preparing their hearts. God, that you would be stirring up their hearts, thinking about the biggest questions in life. God, I I just thank you that you care about us, that you lead us. Holy Spirit, uh, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us, to make us more like you, that you would equip us and empower us to be great and effective evangelists wherever we may be. Whether that's in the synagogue, or in the marketplace, let us faithfully share your word. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name.